Welcome Pastor Steve as he comes up, please. Thank you. All right. Um, Roger, thank you for, in, appreciate the encouraging words. Um, I had breakfast with um, Jonathan and Joanne this morning and really enjoyed hearing from their heart for the children, kids, and heart for ministry. And uh, I've been refreshed um, all the conversations I've had with many of you leaders in the last few days at Engedi with some of the leaders from around the nation and um, really encouraged with what God's doing in you and through you. Really, it really is a good thing. Sometimes we're in the middle of it and we, um, every now and then we need to try to be like God in certain ways. And, you know, God worked for six days and stepped back and looked at what he did and said, this is good. And every now and then we need to kind of pull back and go, you know, because sometimes in ministry we're so focused on crisis. There's always a crisis, always. There's, people ask me, hey, is everything okay? And I go, no. But most things are, and so I'm good. There's never been a moment ever in ministry where everything's good. That from the first few days in the garden, it was like that. Since then, uh, since the fall, there's never a moment where everything's good. So uh, as long as enough is good, uh, we, we move on. And yeah, so I, from my perspective, wow, you guys are doing great. And what God is doing in you, for you, through you is so encouraging. And, but I'm sure you're aware of all kinds of problems and crisis. And we're going to talk about that in a moment as leaders um, what, I'm going to give you permission to ignore a lot of that and move on to other things. I want to start with a question, okay? Start with a question. Would you get with, we just did this a moment ago, but this is a little different. Three of you, all right? And here's the question. What is the best team you've ever been a part of and why? What made that a great team? And I'll give you an example. I'll start, okay? And then I want you to get with three of you. So not four, not two, but three. And each of you take no more than one minute. Best team you've ever been a part of and why? Now, here's the problem. Do not get with someone who's your boss because then you have to say it's their team. <laughs> you know, if you don't say it's their team, then they're looking at you like, well, what's wrong with our team? So do not get with your boss. All right? So here's my answer, okay? All right. Shh. Here's my answer. One of the best teams I've ever been a part of was the Philippine National Little League Baseball team when my son James was 11 years old. Uh, it, was a, it was a team. I was, the, I was the assistant coach, and it was a Filipino team, and there were a couple of Americans and one Honduran. So my son was on the national team, and we won. Manila won the nation. Then we went to Australia and won the region, and now we're playing in Guam. And if we win this, we go to the World Series. I know baseball's not a big deal here, but we're going to the World Series in America to play teams from all over the world. And it was a great team because everybody knew their part, and everybody had their role. We had a great head coach, marginal assistant coach, that was me, <laughs> and... and Honestly, my son was one of the best players on the team. And all we had to do, we won a couple of rounds in Guam and we're playing Japan and we got beat 19 to 0. <laughs> we got destroyed by Japan. They went on to win the World Series. But that team 
was amazing because everybody was all in, everybody knew their role, everybody deferred, and that leader we had, that head coach, he was from Honduras, he was the president of a seminary, and Dr. Miguel Alvarez. By day, he was a theologian, by weekend, he was a baseball coach, and wow, his son was almost as big as you, 12 years old, and he broke the balls, he hit them so hard. They were checking his his birth certificate everywhere he went. There's no way you're 12, but he was. So that was the best team, one of the best teams I've ever been a part of. So it might be your ministry team. It might be somewhere you worked. It might, whatever. Okay, take one minute each, three minutes. What's the best team you've ever been a part of, and why was that a great team? What made it a great team? Okay, let's wrap it up. Ten seconds. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, let me have at least two people. Volunteer somebody. Tell us what it, give us your answer. Okay, somebody just volunteered or got volunteered. Huh? All right. Uh, great. Well, I was part of uh, a lot of great teams, but the greatest team I was ever part of was the reject team of the third cricket. <laughs> and we went undefeated for the season, laughed our way to everyone, and got into the newspaper for being undefeated. It was awesome. Yeah. All right. Somebody else. Volunteer someone else, Roger. I, I thought I was part of a great team, and then my wife stood up and said, the family's a great team, and I immediately felt embarrassed because it wasn't my team. <laughs> but, but we had a season of a, of a business team that for a season, the guys came in early, we were committed, they did well, there was excellence, and just relationships, and a great season for a couple of years. Great. One more. One more. <laughs> It, I think they're both pointing to the one in the middle. They were both pointing to you. <laughs> okay, I should have raised my hand. Um, <laughs> um, so for the three of us, I think I'd just give the reasons why our teams were great. Um, it was about safety, how everybody felt like um, they could be themselves, like the team um, drove them to become more of, the, of who they are. And also the buy-in from everyone in the team. So whatever the mission was that's where we were kind of going um and also um excellency i think just yeah freedom as well yeah great i was talking my uh my son my middle son james and his wife flew in uh yesterday morning and they're going to do a holiday um with deborah and i and roger and nicola for a few days and um we were talking last night at dinner walking back with uh, james is 30 years old and he's a business owner. And we were talking about this last night. He said he just came from a round of their stores. They have 18 locations of their stores in large cities in America. And he just came back before this trip. He was, he was doing a circuit of their stores in Texas. So he was in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and uh, somewhere else. I don't know. So he did this loop. And he said, Dad, it was interesting. He said what he found out with the store surveys, and he worked looking at each of his store managers. And he said... 
I found that the best team was their leader in Houston, Texas, who he said is the hardest, the least personable, the most difficult. He thought it would be the opposite. And he said what he found were the ones that were more seemingly nicer scored the lowest based on their teams. And he tried to dig deeper and find out why. Now, this isn't, I'm not telling you not to be nice. But he said this tough taskmaster, this, she's a lady, young lady in their Houston store, the whole team graded her the top. And his, he asked them, some of them, he said, would, if you were late four days in a row, what would happen? And they all said, we'd be fired. We would be fired. She would fire us. And he asked other people the same question, their manager, if you were late four days in a row, what would happen? Nothing. And there was a, he started putting together with the clear but high standard that was consistently held, the people loved working for her. Now, they never hung out. They weren't friends. But yet, it was a high standard consistently applied. Whereas some of the others that were, they would love to hang out with them, but the standard was never, they couldn't figure out exactly what the expectations were. This was just a conversation last night uh, that it was some of his data that surprised him. He goes, Dad, this, actually I thought this manager would be the lowest score of all of them and actually got the highest by the peers because, and it's not that any of them actually like her, but they love working for her. Sometimes we confuse a social context with a work environment. One of the, besides the Little League baseball team, one of the best teams I'm privileged to be a part of is our Bishop's Council in the Philippines. And of that group of men and women that I've worked with for almost three decades, some of them, maybe one-third of that team we actually socialize with. The others, we work together, but there's no socialization. We don't just hang out. We don't do things together. And I think sometimes we mistakenly think that by, because we work together, we should be friends. You're going to be friends with a certain group of people, and you don't have to be friends with everybody you work with. You don't. And it's a mistake to think that that's reality because some people have a large capacity for friends. Some people don't. Um, some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. Some people are, you know, they've got best friends everywhere. Some people have a very limited. That, that's really not going to change with most people. So don't mistaken social context with the ability to work well together. Now, we need to love each other. We need to respect each other. We need to honor each other but you're not going to be friends with everybody you work with. And it's a mistake to present that. Sometimes when we talk about spiritual family and things like that, we assume it means something that it actually can't really mean. You need to have some best friends where you work, but everybody will not be. And sometimes for us, after three decades plus living most of that time, 100% of the Philippines in the last few years back and forth, um, there's a circle of people that are really close, lifelong friends. But when we look at it, um, a lot of times it has to do with our children being the same age. And so we ended up at the same phase of life. So 
you know, take Joey Bonifacio. He's been here before. He's a lifelong friend, and our wives are lifelong friends. Because he has three boys, I have three boys. The six of those boys grew up like siblings. We became granddads the same year. Our sons got married the same years. In fact, for each one of us, his oldest and my oldest got married first, then my second, and I mean, no, then my youngest and his youngest got married, and then my middle and his middle son got married. Every, our, our lives and then the grandkids have been rolling out the same. It's really scary how much Joey Marie and Deborah and I's lives are mirror images of each other. And so we're going through phases of life at the same time, whereas Manny Carlos, who I consider a friend, but he's in, he got married later, his kids are much younger, and they go through phases of life at different paces, and so the social connection hasn't always been there. So I just I want to say that to not assume that everybody you work with is going to be a close friend, okay? But you have to find those close friends at work. You have to find them, and not always, but in my life, it tends to parallel phases of life. So don't get frustrated if a certain relationship's not. Just make sure it's a good work relationship. That's okay. You're not going to be friends with everybody. Uh, but you need to work well with everybody. Okay? Now, I want to talk about how many of you are in primarily, I know we have a mix here of, of campus and church, and we have a mix of more of admin and management versus more ministerial. Everything every one of us do is ministry. Okay, I get it, but I'm not sure how you divide it, what language you use here. Um, sometimes we say we have people who primarily work in the office and those who work in the field. Uh, sometimes we say admin and ministerial. So how many of you would be primarily working in admin? And everybody does some level, but that's primarily your job. Primarily admin, management. How many of you are primarily in more of the ministry side, not the management or admin side? Okay. Wow. That is a strange mix right there. Usually it's like two-thirds admin and one-third ministerial. That's the opposite here. That's the, oh, who are here who aren't paid. They're not paid. Okay. Okay, so some of you are not paid. Others of you are not paid well. So, <laughs> so that's usually what it breaks down to, ministry and volunteer. So. So uh, I'm sorry. That's, uh, I don't know what your salary structure is. <laughs> All right. We're not in it for that. <laughs> now, so I want to, I'm going to talk a little bit now about the role of pastors. And again, every church in, in, in all of the every nation world, that word means different things. We kind of use pastor generically for any of the fivefold ministry usually. I'm not sure why we do that. Um, a lot of times it's an evangelist, but if they're working in a church, we call them Pastor So-and-So. Um, so Pastor Timba. Do they call him Pastor Timba? Even though you're an evangelist. And everybody calls Rice Pastor Rice, even though he's not a pastor. And people call me Pastor Steve. If you take Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Pastor, Teacher, I am the worst pastor ever. The only thing that I do as poorly as pastoring is evangelism. And I guess profit, too. You do not want to profit from me because <laughs> prophecy, because I just made it up, okay? It's, it's probably not from God if I prophesy to you. It's probably, what I'm going to do is quote a Bible verse. So I guess it is from God, right? But it's just a random Bible verse I read that morning. It's really, there's really very little prophetic about anything I ever do or say. 
Um, I think apostolically, but really, I am a teacher. Give it, let me do what I want to do. I want to teach the Bible and not much else, okay? But they call me pastor. They don't call me teacher, Steve. That sounds weird. They call me Pastor Steve. So we use that word pastor generically. Um, culturally, that's fine. So, so I'm going to speak to pastors, and then because we're a team, it'll help you if you're more in ad- admin roles to understand what people that you're serving. If I think of Acts 6, great move of God happening, um, sandwiched between numbers of disciples increasing in verse 1 and then down, what is it, around verse 8 or 6, 7, 8 or something, then the numbers of the increasing. In between that, there's some ethnic conflict, there's some um, rich-poor conflict, some economic conflict, and the solution is empowering more people to do managerial, strategic, um, administrative work so that the apostles, or we would say pastors today, could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so I want you who are in ministerial focus to be able to give yourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And when we see that that's the primary role, then those of us who have more of an administrative role, we're able to take things off so that you can give yourself to prayer and the ministry of the word, not as an afterthought, but as a focus. Um, Whoa. All right. Here's the role. I want to talk about three roles, three tasks that pastors, in the generic, whether you're an evangelist, an apostle, a prophet, but let's just say pastors, need to do. I want to simplify it. Here it is. Number one, feed. Feed the flock. Number two, lead. And they're not going to all rhyme, don't worry. That was accidental. Lead. Feed, lead, and thirdly, equip. Let me just break that down for a moment. Several years ago on a study tour in Israel, maybe 15 years ago, I'm there with every nation pastors from all over the world, and one of the few things that I remember from that trip, standing at the Sea of Galilee, anybody been to the Sea of Galilee? We're standing there, and our teacher explained the life of a Galilean fisherman, which, of course, were most of the disciples. And here is the thing that stuck with me. He said that in the Roman Empire, of course, Rome taxed everything. And they taxed fishermen based on the number of fish. Okay? So if you caught 10 fish, that was 10 units to tax. It had nothing to do with the size of the fish. If you... Now, you might catch three large fish. You're paying three rands. You might catch 20 small fish. The three big fish might actually weigh more than the 10 small fish, but you're being taxed 10 rand. You were taxed per fish. So what did that do to a fisherman? What did that mean for a fisherman? Think about it. If you're a fisherman, they don't have a pole and a hook. They have a net. They throw a net. You pull it in. What do you do now? The small ones don't matter. Get rid of these small ones because this is a big one. This is bigger than three small ones. I'm only paying one denarii or one, not a denarii, that's a whole day's wage, but one ran. I don't want the little ones. The little ones are worthless. 
or worth less than the big ones, right? Now, you can, your, your brain can take this somewhere. There are a lot of churches where the pastors see themselves as fishermen, and the big fish matter more than the little fish. However we define the big fish, maybe it's based on what car they drive. And when a big fish comes pulling up in a German car, we treat them like a big fish. And when a little fish comes up wearing made-in-China shoes instead of a German car on two feet. So, so a fisherman would never treat fish equally. He would be a foolish fisherman. Wouldn't make any sense. You would be the dumbest fisherman ever. So Jesus' task and decide. So here, we're standing by the Sea of Galilee. He's explaining this. I want you to turn to John 21 and watch what happened. Most of Jesus' disciples were fishermen from Galilee. That is the mentality they brought into ministry. Big fish are more valuable than little fish. And I want you to know that that mentality in ministry has to die. Whether we subconsciously think a big fish is financial, age, education, ethnicity, clothing, whatever, it's all wrong. But the task of discipleship for three years, Jesus' task was to turn fishermen into shepherds. Why didn't you just start with shepherds? But he picked fishermen. And over three years of walking with Jesus, he had to shift their mentality to stop thinking like fishermen. Now, I understand. Matthew uh, 4.19 says, follow me, I'll teach you how to fish for men. He's speaking to fishermen in fisherman language about the value of every soul and reaching people. But when we think about the value issue, what did a shepherd do? Leave the 99 and go after the one. Typically, the one was a helpless, small, weak, uh, couldn't make it on its own. And so the shepherd's mentality is every sheep is valuable. And every sheep is worth going after, especially the vulnerable. A fisherman did never, did not think that way. And so it's this process of changing our thinking to think like a shepherd. Let's look at John. Chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, this is, of course, the last chapter in John. It's toward the end of the three years of discipleship. Jesus has gone to the cross. He's been buried. He's resurrected. And now he's appearing to his disciples. They had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, of course, there's debate on what did he mean. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Or is he pointing to the fish? Do you love me more than you love fish? Because he's gone back to fishing. I don't know what he meant. You had to be there. But there's a lot of possibilities. What are these? Do you love me more than these? I don't know. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. We're going to talk about feeding in a moment. But notice the obvious. Our love for Jesus is demonstrated, is carried out by how we treat people. Do you love me? 
then let's examine how you relate to people. Like a shepherd, not like a fisherman, okay? These are fishermen who are learning to think like shepherds. He said, verse 16, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. First he said, feed my lambs. Now he says, tend my sheep. Slightly different statement there. A lamb is a small one, a sheep is a mature one. Verse 17, he said to him a third time. Of course, now, of course, your brain bounces back a few chapters later. How many times did Peter deny him? Three times. How many times did Jesus give him a chance to reaffirm his love? Three times. For every time you fail, Jesus gives you an opportunity to reaffirm your love for him. Every time you mess up, there's Jesus going, all right, come on. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, let's go. Get back in the game. And uh, there's a whole sermon in that. He said to him, tend my sheep, so feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Peter was grieved. He said, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know what I did. You know what I just did. You know the words that came out of my mouth. You know my fear. You know I just denied you three times. You know it. Jesus said, feed my sheep. There's a message here about how Jesus is focusing not on ministry but relationship. Um, he's... Every time before he calls Peter back to ministry, he's asking a relational question, not a ministry question. He's not saying, do you still feel called? Do you still have the vision? Do you still want to do ministry? Do you still want to change the world? He's saying, do you love me? Okay, you do? Then go do ministry. Ministry has to flow out of that relationship with Jesus. Ministry that doesn't flow out of a love for Jesus, I don't even know what it is. I don't know if we can call it ministry. But it's a relationship with Jesus. Out of that flows ministry to people. So, first job of those in pastoral or ministerial ministry, whether that focuses on the music part of worship, whether that focuses on campus, evangelism, teaching, kids' ministry, youth ministry, whatever aspect of ministry, First job is to feed, not first as in order of priority, but this first in my notes, feed. Feed lambs and feed sheep. And it's two different things that lambs eat and feed, you know, baby and an adult. It's different. But I want you to notice this, it's plural. And please notice this if you're in a ministerial role. This was a hard one for me to learn, but it changed my life and it changed my ministry and it changed the way we did church. We started in 1984, and by 1990 to 1992, we went through a radical shift in how we did ministry in Manila because of this idea right here. It's plural. Lambs. Not lamb, lambs. Flock. It's not an, you're not to be an individual personal chaplain. It's plural. It's always plural. We do ministry in community to community. When we individualize everything, we are cutting short what God wants to do. It's why I tend to do all ministry in small groups, not individual. Certainly there are occasional private things that are one-on-one, but most of it's not. Um, so let me encourage you, if you're in pastoral, ministerial, 
make it plural. Do ministry in community, in small group. Less individual, more community. So, in order to properly feed sheep, it requires a genuine love for all. Not just the big ones. So to think like a shepherd, not like a fisherman. I ran into an old friend of mine. He was a megachurch pastor. He wasn't an every nation guy, but he was a good friend. And when I was on MPD for 17 years, his church was one of my largest partners and great guy. Bumped into him on a plane. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And, and um, he had become a church consultant and a good one. And, um, and he was being a church consultant specializing in leadership transitions. And then he would become the interim pastor when a pastor was fired or died or something like that. And then, but he would be an interim in order to help them find a permanent replacement. But he would never take that role. And so he was flying to one of those. We were talking. And um, here's how he described it. He said, you know, what I do is I help churches find a pastor who actually cares because I don't. And he was saying it kind of, I, he was very sarcastic. I, I got what he was saying. He said, you know, basically, my goal is to find somebody who really loves this city and loves these people. Because I don't, what he meant was, I'm not called there. I'm not moving there. That's not me. I will preach every Sunday until we find the right person. I will help them find the right person, but it's not me. It's not what I'm doing. I'm not giving my life for that. But I'm going to help them. And he does. He helped them get better. I had another pastor friend who made this comment in today. He had a large church, and it just gets smaller and smaller, and it's just a remnant today. But he said this, and it's, not, it's predictable what happens. It's sad. He was a great preacher, teacher. I mean, amazing. He said, I like everything about ministry except the people. And he said it kind of trying to be funny, but he was actually telling the truth. And at some point, people realized that, that he cared more about how many listened to his podcast from Sunday than the actual people who he was supposed to be shepherding. So if you want to feed, it starts with actually loving those people. The best preachers aren't people who appear on the stage, kind of float in after missing everything else going on and preach and then disappear and have so nobody can get near them and suck the anointing out of them. And, you know, the best preachers are those who come from within the congregation and function in their role and go back in their part of the congregation. Which is why the most important message you will ever hear from this pulpit, ever, it will never be from a guest speaker. And take the same for your church, whatever. It will always be from the senior pastor. It doesn't matter who's the better preacher. The most important word ever preached from any church will not be from Jim LaFoon. It will not be from me. It will not be from whoever the guest is. The most important word ever preached in a local church is always from the shepherd of that flock. The one who actually cares. Now, I care about you, but not like he does. Because I'm not staying here. I'm getting on a plane in a few days, and I'm going somewhere else. But he's staying here. He's laying his life down here. And so the quicker we learn that... That's the most important message ever. Feeding the flock. Feeding requires love. Or actually care about those people. 
Feeding requires serious study of Scripture. Not starting Friday to figure out what am I going to say and then Googling sermon illustrations. Forget sermon. You don't need, forget it. Illustrations are everywhere. Study Scripture. You don't need commentaries. You don't need to be an amateur Greek mispronouncing words. Study the Scripture. You don't need, if you've got commentaries, fine, but don't overuse them. That's a last resort when you've got a word from God. The best preaching is not all that stuff. It's somebody who lives in the text and studies it and breathes it and lives it and wrestles with it and steps out from within the congregation to deliver a word from God. And then goes back in that community and lives it out in community. Not an import who dazzles people as a great communicator and then leaves. Serious study. Let me give two recommendations. Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. Anybody ever read that? Eat This Book. I recommend it to everyone, whether you preach or not. Eat This Book. It's a, it's a layman's... Eugene Peterson recently died. He's a brilliant scholar. But he writes in layman's terms. He writes scholarly too, but this is a layman's... It's a hermeneutics book. How to Interpret Scripture for average people, which is, I'm average people. Great book. Boy, it, was, it helped me. The other one is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by um, Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee. It's a little more technical, but helpful. I would recommend everybody get their hands on those two books. On, it'll help you study Scripture uh, more intentionally. So, what do you need to feed Genuine love, serious study of Scripture, and thirdly, preaching skills. Um, boring preaching is inexcusable. Poor preaching is inexcusable. I hate to do it to you, but I'm going to recommend a book, two books also. The Witness of Preaching by Thomas Long. If you preach, if you want to preach, if you want to preach better, that book rocked my world recently. I've probably given away 100 copies. Unfortunately, I have none to give away to you, but... Find it, The Witness of Preaching by Thomas Long. It's a seminary book. It's a, it's a technical book. It's going to assume a certain level of Bible knowledge. Uh, it's not a layman's book, it's, it's, but it's, it's how, uh, every time we do preaching seminars in Asia, everyone has to get that book and read it. The Witness of Preaching by Thomas Long. The other one is the practice, Practicing the Preaching Life. This is the best preaching book I've ever read. If you only get one, Practicing the Preaching Life by David Ward. But the first half of the book is all about your heart. Second half are basically how to preach. But uh, Dave is a good friend. Uh, he's a, uh, a Princeton-trained PhD from Princeton, but he is a on fire for Jesus, a scholar. Of course, he reads his Bible every morning, his Greek Bible and his Hebrew Bible, and then yeah. eventually preaches from his English Bible. Because so, I was asking, what's the best tool for Greek and Hebrew? What do you use? He goes, I don't really use any of those. Well, I kept pressing, kept pressing, kept pressing. Then he finally admitted to me that that's what he does. But he doesn't throw around Greek and Hebrew. He never even mentions it. But the way he preaches is rich. We bring him to the Philippines every year. And actually, he's now, uh, this is the good news, he's now our Every Nation Seminary homiletics professor. Uh, his seminary, he teaches at Indiana Wesleyan, 
teaches undergrad preaching. He teaches at Asbury Seminary the doctoral students in preaching, and they've given him permission to help develop over the next few years the Every Nation Seminary's homiletics course. He and Brian Taylor. He was Brian's mentor for three years in seminary. He's become a dear friend of mine. So we fly him to Nashville once a year. We fly him to Manila once a year. Hopefully I'll bring him here sometime. Dave, even if you don't preach, when Dave gets finished, you will go straight and start reading your Bible. What, no matter what Dave talks about, what you want to do is, I want to go read my Bible. <laughs> it doesn't matter what text he preaches. The result is, I want to go read my Bible. You will fall in love with Scripture like never before when Dave Ward preaches. It's just, um, plus everybody cries the whole time he preaches and then repents. And then, you know, it's just, sometimes I think I'm preaching okay. And then I get around Dave and I'm thinking, I'm starting over, man. I don't know what I'm doing. If that's preaching what I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I want to do that, though. So, anyway. Get his book, even if you never preach, because most of it is about the heart and letting God deal with your heart and go deep in your soul and deep in your heart and living a doxological life, living a lifestyle of worshiping Jesus with everything you are and everything you do. And then he gets to the preaching stuff to apply it, but he's, he camps out on the heart. So he's just saying practicing the preaching life, not the sermon on Sunday, but a preacher's life. And, it, and what Dave basically says is this, real simple. You want to be a better preacher? Become a better Christian. Yeah. That'll help. <laughs> no, no, I just want preaching tips for Sunday. No, no, we're going to deal with Monday through Saturday. And you're going to be a better preacher on Sunday. But if we just focus on Sunday, we can make you a better communicator, but we'll not make you a better preacher. There's a difference in being a communicator and a preacher. Because a preacher steps there with a word from God. A communicator can just read a speech. You can get an actor from Hollywood. I mean, there have been movies. Remember Chariots of Fire? The guy who played Eric Little. Remember that sermon he preached from Isaiah 40? It's one of the most powerful movie scenes ever. They're showing the track, the race running on Sunday that he stepped out of, and then it shows him preaching Isaiah 40. From That guy was an ungodly, immoral actor who died of AIDS tragically two years later. But when he preached the word as an act, I could feel the anointing every time I watched that movie. Go watch that movie. Go watch that scene. Because God anoints his word. So... Anyway, Dave will talk about practicing the preaching life. What does the preaching life look like Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday? All right, all right I'm going way detouring. All right, let me, let me go to the next one. I'm going to run through this quickly. I'm lost track of time. We need to take a break, right? All right. Um, well, why don't we pause right there, okay? And I've talked about feeding and to be better at feeding the flock, it requires love. It requires serious study. Not giving it just a glance and going to sermons, sermoncentral.com. But wrestling with a text and praying it and living it and repenting it. The most powerful preaching is when it's, we've repented that text and we've let that text deal with us, and we've let that text preach to us, and we've let that text convict us, and it drops us to our knees, 
and we've gotten right with God over that text. And you know what? Then we're not sure we really even need to go Google sermon illustration for this because we are the illustration. And it's become very personal at this point. So it's loving, serious study, and developing the preaching skills, upgrading our skills. It's, you know, what I always do between services, um, I will pull people aside and go, help me make that better. What didn't make sense? What, I'm always working on being more skillful. And sometimes people won't answer, oh, that was great. No, no, I don't need to hear that. What I need, because I'm about to do this again, and those people need better. Help me. Tell me something that I can make it better next time. And usually, no, you were amazing. I, no, I don't want that. My wife will tell me that. So listen, <laughs> actually, sometimes. <laughs> tell me. And then finally they'll go, you know what? When you made this point, I don't even know what you're saying. That didn't make any sense. Okay, here's what I was trying to say. Help me say that better. Or, gosh, you really seemed angry when you made that point. Okay, um, what did I do that came across? You said this. Oh, yeah, oh, man, okay. So... I want to develop skills. I want to get better at this. And I need people to help me. I need people to merit. And I need to pull in. Um, so, all right. Let's take a moment and um, talk to somebody next to you. Anything that you learned from that? Anything that inspired you, convicted you, confused you? Um, tell somebody. Let's review that. Yeah, five minutes. All right, 20 seconds. All right. I do want to say this. What we're doing right now, for those of you who preach, this is not preaching. Don't ever do what I'm doing right now. This is like a leadership training seminar, and a sermon is entirely different. You know, when you're preaching a sermon, I would encourage you to get to your text as soon as possible with as little said before that as possible, enough to give some level of here's why I need to listen to that text, as short of an intro as possible, and dive in the text and let the text talk to the people, okay? When you're preaching, I will say this, the only part of your sermon that is purely the Word of God is when you read the text. The rest of it is a mixture of God's word and your opinion. So read the text. Read the whole text. Don't paraphrase it. Don't comment. Let God's word speak to God's people. There's something powerful. Therefore, I would encourage you to practice reading the Bible out loud. When you're reading a text to preach, 
and you stumble over mispronounced words, it means you haven't practiced this out loud. Uh, it diminishes people's attention to the word. And there are clicks you can do on Bible Hub. It'll tell you how to pronounce it and all of that. And so I just, when we preach the idea is to elevate the word of God. There's the written word of God. And then my preaching is my best attempt to understand, interpret, and apply God's word to a particular church community. And the application will be different in various different church communities. The interpretation's generally the same, but we want to elevate God's word. And um, so, all right, let's go through this. I've said, what is the role in ministry? It's to feed, to feed the people of God. And we do that primarily through preaching sermons. And uh, you may notice if you're around me much, I do not, uh, if anybody calls themselves a communicator around me, I correct them. Are you called to preach or communicate? And I would encourage you, if you're a pastor and you preach the word, to go do a study of preaching in Scripture. And there's a big difference in a communicator and a preacher. There are people who are great communicators, and they are terrible preachers. Because if you're a communicator, there's a whole different way of things you learn. If you're a preacher, then you better hear God and get your heart right and apply it to you. There's a lot of stuff that preaching implies that being a communicator does not. I understand some of the modern people want to try to, you know, sell themselves as motivational speakers and communicators and all that. That's not me, okay? I am unapologetically a preacher, and preaching has nothing to do with volume. You can be conversate. Preaching has to do with purpose, context, and message. You don't have to be like Chris Johnson and sweat and scream. You don't have to be like, wait, Chris wasn't, we were in Nigeria together. You don't have to be like that. You can be calm and quiet and whatever your personality is. But, but the context and purpose and message determines whether it's preaching or communicating. The announcements need good communicators. The sermon needs a good preacher. Don't confuse the two. All right. I keep going back to preaching for some reason. Let me go to lead. And I'm going to briefly talk about these last two. Feed, lead, and equip. Lead. You lead by example primarily. Some people try to lead primarily by proclamation. Uh, that can be done, but example mixed with proclamation is really better. Example mixed with motivation. Example mixed with explanation. But just the verbal without the example, for instance, in our church in 1990 to 1992, when we shifted gears from one-on-one -on -one discipleship, first six years of our church, all discipleship was one-on-one. -on -one. When we finally realized it was plural, we shifted. It took us two years from one-on-one -on -one to small group discipleship. We didn't do it by proclamation. We didn't stand up in the pulpit and say, we're changing the way we do things. For two years, we never mentioned it from the pulpit. Never, not once. What we did, me, my wife, Manny Carlos, his wife, our key leaders, about a dozen of us, started doing discipleship in small groups, and we never mentioned it from the pulpit, never once. It was a 
the worst kept secret we ever had. We did what I called a top-down grassroots movement. And the truth is, most things that look like a grassroots movement are top-down. You look at what's going on in Hong Kong, that is not a grassroots movement. Don't think that for a second. That is orchestrated top-down. Almost everything that looks grassroots is top-down. It's rarely a spontaneous movement. Anyway, people would come up and say, I heard about these small groups here. Can I join one? And I would go, no, you cannot. But you can start one. I'll help you start one. What you do is get three people from church and then at least three people who never go to church. And I'll come meet with you for about four weeks and then you're leading it. And we never say it from the pulpit. And then every week, it just started spreading over those two years. Can I get in one of those groups? I keep hearing about these groups. They didn't even have names. They were just these groups. Now they're called victory groups. But then it was just our answer every time was, no, you can't join one. But you could start one. You say, but wait a minute. What if they weren't mature? We didn't care. Some people were too mature for that. I didn't care. This guy's only been saved six weeks. You can start one. Find somebody who's been saved six minutes, and you can disciple them. Find somebody who's not saved and helped them follow Jesus. You can disciple them, even if you've been walking with him for six weeks. And that's how this thing. And then, at about two, two and a half years, we started saying things from the pulpit every now and then. But we led by example, not by proclamation. The best leadership is by example. And that's what Jesus did. Follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. Watch how I do this. Did Jesus ever teach on prayer? Occasionally, but not much. But every morning they go, where'd Jesus go? Oh, he's over there praying. Then eventually he would say things about prayer. But it was more corrective than teaching. Don't do it this way. But he had been setting this example of when they're with him every morning. Where'd he go? How come he's always up so early? Oh, Oh, he's over there praying. Let's leave him alone. Then when he started teaching because the example he had set... Ah, that. He didn't teach without an example. Three spheres of leadership that we talk about in my context is relational leadership, spiritual leadership, and organizational leadership. Some of you would tend toward one or the other, and then you have to upgrade which one you maybe aren't so natural at. Simon and I have talked about this a lot the last few days and how his natural bent is organizational leadership, and, which is fortunate because you have an engineering degree. Anybody who's got an engineering degree and is not organizational in their thinking is probably not going to be a good engineer. Um, that's the way the mind works. Um, so we've talked about this quite a bit, and um, I kind of lean that way a little, probably more spiritual leadership, relational, not so much. I had to learn a lot about relational leadership. But all three are vital uh, for leadership in a ministry context. And when we talk about relational leadership, it's basically leading people. Because the truth is, ultimately we're leading people. If you're leading a church, it's people. Um, I have never had an organization get offended. But I've had a lot of people get offended by the way I've led. I didn't hurt the organization's feelings. The logo did not get its feelings hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And the legal document 
for every nation global never got offended or hurt or felt rejected by me. It's in a file folder somewhere in Nashville. There's a legal document, the Every Nation Corporate Structure. So I can be a good organizational leader and a terrible relational leader. So relational leadership is just the bottom line is that ultimately we're leading people. If you're a worship leader, you're ultimately, what are you leading? The church? You're leading people. I had a conversation with one of our greatest intercessors in the Philippines. I mean, amazing. Just high, uh, uh, a level of prayer that I, 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 can, only, I can only imagine. <laughs> if someone would only write a song about that, I could only imagine <laughs> being at that level of prayer. But here was my conversation with him because our prayer meetings were actually kind of boring because this great prayer leader and this team of intercessors left everybody else behind. And they went up into the heavenlies and everybody else was stuck on earth. So I, what was, so I, said, I said, look, and I, taught, I said, listen, when you're leading a prayer meeting, what are you actually leading? It's those people. And they're not as good at this as you are. And you went so far so fast, nobody can keep up. So let's break it down to the basics for people like me who aren't that good at this. And hold our hand and walk us through it. And I'll tell you what, the prayer meeting is going to be a lot better than the 12 angelic prayer warriors doing their thing. And the rest of us are going, I don't know what just happened. (laughs) I have no idea what's going on here. I don't know. It seems spiritual, but I don't know. I don't understand this. I just need my tuition paid. I just, I just need to know how to ask God. All this heavenly stuff, I don't know, but I got bills. How do I get God to come through? So we can do that from the pulpit in preaching. We can do that in prayer. We can do that in discipleship. We can do that in theology. We can do that in the musical aspects of worship. And so we got to realize we're leading people. And some of them are lambs, and some of them are sheep, and some of them are rams, and there's all different kinds, and we've we got to make sure everybody's coming on the journey with us. It's people. We've got to keep that relational connection in leadership. And then it's spiritual leadership. And usually that's in a some level of meeting context, leading a prayer meeting, leading worship from this stage. That's spiritual leadership. Leading the people in prayer and fasting and leading the people in seasons of repentance and, and exercising spiritual leadership. It's usually in a communal context. There's a community aspect. And then organizational leadership. It's leading the, the organization. And at some level, a church is an organization. And at some level, there has to be. There have to be board meetings. Board meetings aren't in the Bible But if you're going to get a bank account, you have to have an institution and there has to be a board and there are governmental laws that are different in every nation. South Africa is different than, you know, and what what we do in Singapore is different than what we do in America and different than what we do in the Philippines. But we have to at some level have some kind of organizational leadership skills we develop. I wish I could just be a spiritual and a relational leader because the Bible speaks a lot about that. It speaks very little about organizational leadership, but it is so important. And that's where sometimes people don't upgrade because they don't think that's very spiritual. And they neglect it. 
I am grateful for some great consultants that help us because the organizations that I lead are far beyond my capacity. And so I have to bring in outsiders to help me uh, figure out what to do next. I had to go back to school to figure that out. Three years um, of studying succession planning, leadership transition, how do you sustain an organization beyond the founders? Three years of my life that I just finished because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do this. And I looked at too many train wrecks around me, people that do it wrong. Too many things when the founders are no longer leading, it just crashes or goes off course or has theological drift or becomes something that it shouldn't have been. And uh, I didn't know. And so I at least have a direction now. All right. When it comes to leading meetings, a few thoughts. We need leaders, not MCs. Spare us the MCs at church. We don't need a, a talk show variety package going on on Sunday morning during worship. We need leaders. If the whole thing is a worship service, we don't need comedians. We don't need, we, we don't need all that. But I've watched sometimes churches, somebody gets in the role of an MC. It's like, wait a minute. This is not a variety show. We need a leader up there. And somebody does need to transition from the music portion of worship to the giving portion of worship. But it's all still worship. And we worship God in song. And then we worship God with our offering. It's part of worship. But when we get an MC, it's no longer worship. It's like, okay, the worship is over. Now we're going to do this. And I feel compelled to give a little joke and say a little funny thing. And then it comes like a, I don't know, but it just turns into something else. It's like, wait a minute. I came to a worship service. Let's lead the people in worship and make them stay in worship and not pull them out because the offering is worship. The way I respond to a sermon is supposed to be worship. And if we see it all as worship, the way we preach is different. And the way we receive a sermon is different because the way I'm listening to the word preached, that's part of my worship to God. But when we shrink worship to just music, we miss what's going on. So we need spiritual leaders at every aspect of a church service because the whole thing is about worship. You know what? I'm going to skip the rest of that. Let me say a couple of things. I'll just ignore this, okay? Let me say a couple of things about equipping. So remember I said here's what we do as spiritual leaders. We feed and you may not be the one standing here, but you have parts to play. In Acts 6, there were a lot of admin and social responsibility things had to go on so that that apostle, or in our terminology, pastor, could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And part of what we're doing is making sure the feeding moments are healthy by taking things off. All right, so let's go to equip. We equip for ministry. You know, I'm not going to read the scripture. This isn't a Sunday sermon. You know Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And I do want to, I do want to welcome um, David to apostolic, to the apostolic life. Okay. Um, and one day, one day Simon and one day soon, hopefully, uh, Roger will be apostolic. Um, Apo is Filipino for grandchild. 
And so when your first grandchild comes, you're now apostolic. So, so some only long to be apostolic. You're apostolic, right? How many of you are apostolic? You got apos. All right. What a life, okay? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Filipino joke. So, yes, apo. So I'm apostolic times four. Not a double anointing, four times. Yes. Um, but when we talk about God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to prepare God's people or to equip the saints for the work of ministry, our role is not to equip people for everything. It's to equip them for ministry. And I watch churches trying to become a catch-all. They're trying to equip people for financial success. I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you doing? You're getting way outside of your gifting and calling and expertise. What do you mean, Pastor, you're equipping people to be entrepreneurs? What do you know about that? I'm saying in the generic. What it says is we are to equip the saints of God, the people of God, for the work of the ministry. And the more we stay in that narrow lane, the better off we are as a church. Your job as a minister of the gospel is to equip. It is not to do all the ministry. Let me end with this. Um, Let me end with this thought. Question then. Uh, I've gone too long here. Let me end with this question that you can ponder. Do you spend more time doing ministry or equipping others to do ministry? You know, Deborah and I were talking last night. She did not attend church Sunday here, uh, which is rare. But she didn't sleep at all the night before. And I, after breakfast, I said, Deborah, you haven't slept. You didn't sleep all night. It's jet lag. I said, just, because she just flew in. I came from Nigeria, so I've been on this time zone. I said, just go to sleep. And if you text me, we'll send someone to pick you up for the 10 o'clock service. If you don't text us, I'm going to assume you're asleep, and I'm going to let you sleep. So she slept through. So when I got back, I was bragging about the music. I, I really was. It, it, I was saying, it was amazing. I said, here's the most amazing part. Belinda wasn't up there. I'm assuming it was all people she equipped. And it's always been amazing here for years. Every time I come here, the worship, I go back kind of, man, we need to upgrade our worship. We need to, what do we do? I mean, that's one of the things I go back with is, man, we seem too sedate. Let's get some. And they're going, hey. Usually when in America, we're Americans. We're not, (laughs) those are Africans. I don't go, the Filipinos are lively too, but, but I'm assuming, at least, I mean, it's here one Sunday, but she was doing less ministry, more equipping. I'm sure you still do that sometimes, once a month, okay. But I'm watching the power of equipping. So I think we have to ask ourselves as ministers, am I doing more ministry or equipping? It's always both. It's not one or the other. But some people do too much ministry to succeed in ministry. Okay? If you do all ministry and no equipping, you're not going to succeed in ministry because part of your job is to equip others to do what you do. And they probably won't do it as good as you at times. But you still equip and empower. And then when they mess up, you know what to equip more. So please shift gears into equipping mode. Equipping. Some people do too much ministry to succeed. They need to back off 
and equip and empower and give some other space, especially a growing ministry like this. Again, my context was Rosebank here and what I've seen here, just the growth, then it demands. Sometimes when things grow, ministers start doing more ministry and more ministry and more ministry. When things grow, that's not the solution. You need to do more equipping and more equipping and more equipping, not doing more ministry, more equipping, more empowering, and the growth of it shouldn't affect the amount of ministry you do. It affects the amount of equipping you do.